0: The Lord opened his mighty storehouse and firmly set his great measure on the ground. The king removed his old barley from the other barley. He measured out in full the barley for the granary, adding for the teeth of locusts. He had it loaded on the packasses, at whose sides reserve donkeys were placed. The king, the lord of broad wisdom, the lord of Unug, the lord of Kulaba, dispatched them directly to Arata. He made the people go on to Arata on their own, like ants out of crevices. to the Drumbeat Forever After, It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex, and this is my guest.
1: Kelton, also known as one of the pack-asses.
0: And we are still listening to Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata, a 21st century BCE Sumerian text. So previously, Enmerkar demanded submission and tribute from the Lord of Arata. The Lord refused... He agreed to trade, but he said he wouldn't submit until he received a sign that the gods had truly forsaken him in favor of Enmerkar.
1: Flawless plan. Right, exactly. This dude is not about (laughs) to get devastated romantically and politically shamed.
0: Yeah, so in other words, yeah, his girlfriend, the goddess of both (laughs) kingdoms. Such a bad plan, man. I mean, sometimes you're the antagonist in like a thinly written story. So, Edmircar, king of Unuk, sends his messenger with another message for Arata. He says, The
1: base of my sceptre is the divine power of magnificence. Its crown provides a protective shade over Kulaba. Under its spreading branches, holy Inanna refreshes herself in the shrine Iana. Let him snap off a splinter from it and hold that in his hand. Let him hold it in his hand like a string of carnelian beads, a string of lapis-lazuli beads. Let the lord of Arata bring that before
0: me. So the messenger travels back to Arata. After he had thus spoken to him, the messenger went on his way to Arata. His feet raised the dust of the road and made the little pebbles of the hills thud. Like a dragon prowling the desert, he was unopposed. After the messenger reached Arata, the people of Arata stepped forward to admire the packasses. In the courtyard of Arata, the messenger measured out in full the barley for the granary, adding for the teeth of locusts, as if from the rains of heaven and the sunshine, Arata was filled with abundance. As when the gods returned to their seats, Arata's hunger was sated. So the Lord of Arata recognizes his defeat. He sees that Unug has been able to feed his people when he can't. And that Inanna has shown that she favors Unug.
2: As for us, in the direst hunger, in our direst famine, let us prostrate ourselves before the Lord of Kulava.
0: So we can see that Southern Mesopotamia's larger scale agricultural production is a way to impose their power on other states.
1: That was also very anticlimactic. That was a very easy contest. Oh, no, so the story's just, not over yet. Oh, there, good, good, good. Yeah, there are um, multiple contests. Fantastic.
0: So the messenger repeats Enmerkar's message, and the lord of Arata is upset. He excuses himself and fasts until the next day. So, when he returns, the lord challenges Enmerkar to make a scepter without any of the materials he gets from Arata. And he recites a long list of materials that Unug is not allowed to use including wood, metal, and semi-precious stones. So if Enrakkar cannot make a scepter without these materials from Arata, then he will have proven that Unug relies on Arata, not the other way around. So the messenger returns to Unug and repeats the message. Enrakkar makes a new scepter, but the text is broken, so we don't know exactly how. And he gives it to the messenger, who goes back to Arata. And when the lord of Arata sees the scepter, he says,
2: Arata is indeed like a slaughtered sheep. Its robes are indeed like those of the rebel lamb." Since Holy Anana has given the primacy of Arata to the Lord of Kulaba, Now it seems that Holy Inanna is looking with favor on her man. Who has sent a messenger to make the severe message as clear as the lights of Utu. So in Arata, where can one go in this crisis? How long before the yoke rope becomes bearable? As for us, in the direst hunger... In our direst famine, are we to prostrate ourselves before the Lord of Kulaba?
0: So whiskey, Enmerkar has proven that he doesn't need Arata, and that Arata has no bargaining power over Unuk. So the Lord of Arata sends the messenger back with a challenge for Enmerkar.
2: A champion who is not black. A champion who is not white. A champion who is not A champion who is not red. A champion who is not yellow. A champion who is not multicolored. Let him give you such a champion. My champion will compete against his champion. And let the more able one prevail.
1: (laughs) <laughs> there the first two lines of this is inherently funny. Oh I mean, yes. I don't I, care if you're purple or yeah, green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Grandpa, yeah. please stop. You clearly <laughs> care. <laughs>
0: You know, there's that theory that the order in which societies produce new color terms, is like, you know, the first color terms they use are black and white, and then mm-hmm. red, and then I think either yellow or green or something like that. So it is interesting that it's like the racial terms used by Johann Blumenbach are the same ones that the Sumerians use. Huh. This recalls the literary tradition of deciding a conflict between states with single combat. We see this in Iliad Book 3, and also in the David and Goliath story.
1: Oh, and you love must challenging Vladimir Putin on one-on-one combat, <laughs> don't forget about that. <laughs>
0: So the messenger goes back to Unug, and Enmerkar agrees to send textiles to Arata, so we can see a shift from legendary-style heroic single combat to the exchange of trade goods as a venue for competition between states.
1: Higher quality,
0: fine garments.
1: This is the most banal of all myths. Yes, they are thoroughly
0: domesticated.
1: (laughs) I mean, I I thought I was going to get, like, two buff guys and, like, some leotards fighting each other, (laughs) but uh, I guess we're going to go with a garment that is not black. A garment that is not A garment that is not brown, a garment that is not red, a garment that is not yellow, a garment that is not multicolored, I shall give him such a garment. My champion is embraced by Enlil. I shall send him such a champion. My champion will compete against his champion, and let the more able one prevail. Yeah. So did the messenger mess up the wor- garment? Is there like some wordplay here where he could get garment here? Or is he just literally...
0: I actually don't know if there's a wordplay aspect. My interpretation is just that Enmerkar heard, send me a guy super buff to do single combat. He's like, ah, I will outsmart him with my superior products because we have many sheep that we can feed with all our grass.
1: Huh. I want to do an exactly different thing. I mean, yeah. Huh. Yeah, I mean that's so much of the outsmart, more of a just a blatant ignore.
0: So again, the text is broken. So we're jumping forward. It's unclear exactly what happens with the champions, but it describes Unug's champion. Thus, the clever champion, when he came, had covered his head with a colorful turban and wrapped himself in a garment of lion skins. This recalls the story of Hiranya Kashipu and Narasimha where a lion is a loophole to seemingly impossible circumstances. Yeah, that's the one was like, I wish to not die during the day or at night, inside or outside, etc. By a man or by a beast. He ends up getting killed by a godly half-man, half-beast at sunset on the doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the hero wearing a lion pelt recalls both Heracles and Samson. The story of Samson, of course, has a riddle where the answer, being a lion, is a loophole to a seemingly impossible circumstance. So Enmerkar expects his messenger to also repeat every previous message along with the new message. I've been editing these for repetition, but every time the message gets longer, and eventually it becomes too much for the messenger to remember. So, to solve this problem, Enmerkar invents written language. His speech was substantial, and its contents extensive. The messenger, whose mouth was heavy, was not able to repeat it. Because the messenger, whose mouth was tired, was not able to repeat it, the lord of Kulaba patted some clay and wrote the message as if on a tablet. Formerly, the writing of messages on clay was not established. Now, under that sun, and on that day, it was indeed so. The Lord of Kulaba inscribed the message like a tablet. It was just like that. That is a just-so story if I ever saw Oh,
1: uh, Oh, whoa, 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 don't worry, I'm going to invent. I'm going to invent writing. of there's some punctuation for you. Exactly. What does any of this mean? Yeah. Have fun. Part of the thing that makes writing work is we both have agreed upon and understand the writing out of this. is yeah. There's actually a longer flashback of the king just like teaching the messenger the ABCs all the music exactly. like, And this is how you hold the tablet. Yeah, it takes like three years. He has
0: to sew the first mortarboard in history <laughs> and just put it on his head.
1: And now you can finally read your diploma. <laughs> that was the arc He gave him the diploma on day one. And the day that he could read the diploma was the He graduated.
0: (laughs) So the messenger goes back to Arata, and he gives the lord of Arata the tablet, but at that moment, the lord worthy of the crown of kingship, the son of Enlil, the god Ishkur, thundering in heaven and earth, caused a raging storm. He caused a mountain range to raise its voice in joy. On Arata's parched flanks, in the midst of the mountains, wheat grew of its own accord, and chickpeas also grew of their own accord. They brought up the wheat which grew of its own accord into the granary of the lord of Arata and heaped it up before him in the courtyard of Arata. The lord of Arata looked at the wheat. The messenger's eyes looked askance. The lord of Arata called to the messenger,
2: Inanna, the lady of all the lands, has not run away from the primacy of her city, Arata, nor has she stolen it for Unu. Inanna has surrounded Arata on its rights and left for her like a rising flood anana the lady of all the land from her great love of dumuzid has sprinkled the water of life upon those who had stood in the face of the flood and made the land subject to them. I always figured it was kind of going to be a
1: diss that all the wheat and the chickpeas were growing of their own accord and not from his own farming might. Or
0: just like a gift. It's like, hey, sorry about the drought.
1: Because in all these myths, like, organized labor and the practice of agriculture is always associated with, like, good and righteous and, like, you know, doing shit like you did before, like, just going out and finding food, a bad, boo, devil stuff. So,
0: we'll see how the story resolves, but first, this episode is part three of three on the Uruk expansion. Today, we'll be looking at the late Uruk period outside of Iran. So we're covering the period between about 3400 and 3100 BCE. So basically, the Uruk expansion was a process by which certain settlements with mostly Uruk material culture, in other words, the material culture of the Mesopotamian alluvium, appear across the Near East. During the Middle Uruk, these mostly took the form of small outposts in or near existing local towns. That trend continues into Late Uruk, but one new trend that we see during the Late Uruk period is the construction from scratch of entirely new Uruk-style cities, most notably at Habuba Kabira, or Tel Kanas, which we'll cover today. So probably these settlements were constructed so that Southern Mesopotamia could control the flow of natural resources from where they appear in nature to Southern Mesopotamia itself, where all these large cities were processing them into finished products. Some of these goods they were importing included timber, copper, stone for building, and certain oils, as well as precious metals like gold and silver, and precious stones like carnelian and lapis lazuli. They were probably also importing a large amount of dependent labor, in other words, slaves and prisoners of war. These might have been in exchange for processed or labor-intensive goods from Southern Mesopotamia, or they may have been exchanged under duress, in other words, as imposed tribute or as plunder. Last episode, we talked about the asymmetrical exchange, which made Southern Mesopotamia stronger socially, economically, and politically, whereas in the periphery, in other words, in the smaller sites that Southern Mesopotamia was building settlements in, at first we see rapid growth as a result of increased trade, but over time, the socioeconomic systems in the periphery weaken as they are developed to meet Southern Mesopotamia's needs and not primarily their own Over time, this is a consistent drain on both labor and resources, and this alters both societies on an institutional level. The benefits of this whole world system were most obvious to the colonizer, or the core. They get tribute and or plunder, they get to import raw materials, and then export mostly labor-intensive goods, you know, worked into products by labor under the control of the elite institutions in the alluvium. And they're also able to import labor, possibly permanently, and whatever kind of resources they need from elsewhere. And in order to do all this, the southern cities needed a massive bureaucracy to process all those goods, to supervise the labor involved in not only agriculture, but also processing these raw materials into products. The periphery obviously changed more as it was set up to produce a small range of goods for export to southern Mesopotamia. This exchange was an opportunity for local elites to expand their power, giving them control over production, accumulation, and or trade, which they could parlay into institutional power. Some locals in the periphery were integrated into elite social groups, and these locals would have a vested interest in maximizing colonial production, at least in the short term. So now that the entire economy depends on this large, complex bureaucracy and vice versa, everyone made more powerful by the system has a vested interest in serving this bureaucracy's needs. So as we've been talking about since the middle Uruk period, we see the construction of Uruk outposts. These are monumental buildings and houses in the alluvial style, the Uruk style. Here, the material culture and the administrative practices are all Uruk. This probably represents some kind of actual migration from the alluvium to these small outposts. What is new during the late Uruk period, as I mentioned, are these new settlements built from scratch. The most notable being Kabuba Kabira. These are usually bigger and more complex than indigenous settlements in the same region. They're often centrally planned and built all at once, and are sometimes fortified against nearby settlements. These are generally established among major trade routes, ideally where north-south routes parallel with the river cross east-west overland routes. Again, this is to control the flow of goods, both by river and overland, from the highlands to the lowlands. So this episode will cover the late Urk expansion outside Iran. We are moving in a generally northwesterly direction, starting in the Persian Gulf, then going up to the Habuba-Kabira metro area in Syria. Then we're going to take a quick look at hasek in Anatolia, and then a much deeper dive into arsalan Tepe in Anatolia which was a trade partner with the Uruk network, but seemingly outside of it. So we have very little archaeological data on the 4th millennium Gulf, much less than we have from the Ubaid period. This is probably related to drying conditions overall. We know the inhabitants of the Gulf Coast were herding sheep, goat, and cattle, as well as continuing to fish, hunt, and gather shellfish. All sites are aceramic. In other words, they have no native pottery tradition. So the island of Aqab is uninhabited today. It's about 50 kilometers north of Dubai. But in the mid-3000s, it was apparently used as a dugong butchering site. The skeletons of dugongs were specially arranged, which might attest to some kind of monumental space or a scarcely related ritual. We also see Mesopotamian-style long tubular beads at the same site. So the sea route from Ur to Um Um-An-Nar, which was one of their sources of copper, is about 1,300 kilometers, or 800 miles. Traveling at a speed of two to four knots, this trip would take you about one month to get from Ur to Um Um-An-Nar. The return trip would be longer because you'd be sailing against the wind. In the earliest archaic texts from the alluvium, the place name Dilmun already appears. In later periods, Dilmun will refer to Bahrain and the nearby coast of the Arabian Peninsula, so clearly they are interacting somehow. In 2009, Daniel Potts wrote about the existence of, quote, a Dilmun axe in the archaic metals list, a Dilmun tax collector, and officials involved with Dilmun, end quote. Another text talks about, quote, one bale of Dilmun garment, end quote, which might refer to fine textiles, all of which indicates that Dilmun might have been a complex society at this point with complex economic relations with the alluvium. During the Uruk period, one analysis found that Oman supplied at least one-fourth of the copper reaching the alluvium. During the middle Uruk, we see copper objects at Gara and Sheikh Hassan, made with copper from Oman. And during the late Uruk, we see copper objects at Unug. So one cylinder seal found at Abu Dhabi is the oldest seal of any type found in the Arabian Peninsula. It depicts two women with pigtails facing each other. Each is extending both arms to a spider-like figure. And behind one woman, we see a headless quadruped and a second spider-like figure. This is part of a common association between women and spiders, probably because of the association between spinning and weaving. This is similar to seals from Susa depicting women weaving, and these seals are generally associated with officials in charge of textile production. So in other words, they would sign on their documents with a little picture of the thing they're in charge of. This style of seal developed out of the quote-unquote baggy style of seal. This first appeared in Susa and the alluvium during the Middle Uruk period. In 2009, Holly Pittman and Daniel Potts wrote of this style is, quote, characterized by figures that are constructed by drillings of different sizes, resulting in large rounded forms, end quote. We see similar seals at Ur, Shurupak, and Lagash, in Iran, in Susa and Chogamish, and in Syria at Habuba-Kabira and Jebel Aruda. Let's take a look at the Habuba-Kabira metro area. So the late Uruk period saw a flurry of intensive building projects. Whereas during the middle Uruk, most of these outposts were small complexes built in pre-existing towns, now they appear to be founding entire settlements from scratch. One of the most notable is Habuba Kabira, also called Telkanas. This is an entire centrally planned city, which may have served as an outpost for Uruk traders traveling upriver. We're in the middle Euphrates Valley, in the Tabka area, which was excavated to prepare for the construction of the Tabka Dam. We're in north-central Syria, north of the modern city of Maskana. And here, we see seven Uruk outposts within a 24-kilometer stretch of the Euphrates, so they're all concentrated in one area, and they appear alongside local settlements, they were all built in a relatively short time frame, which contrasts with the longer history of Uruk contacts at sites like Telbrok and Nineveh. Today, this area receives only about 150 to 250 millimeters of rain a year which is not enough for reliable dry agriculture. These days, you could expect a good crop about one year and ten, although the climate was probably wetter at the time. Because of the landscape, irrigation would only be possible in the floodplain. In other words, only in a limited area directly near the river. So unlike the alluvium in Susiana, there was not a very wide area to dig long canals through. So we know that agriculture was not the primary driver of colonization here. In fact, this area is useless for all resources except for mineral salt. So we're going to start by looking at Sheikh Hassan. This is on the east bank of the Middle Euphrates, across the river from Habuba Kabira. Alluvial goods here first appear in the 3700s BCE, and over time, the material culture will become dominated by the south, following a similar timeline to other sites in the region. The first Uruk colony is established around 3400 BCE, so around the beginning of the late Uruk period, and this existed alongside the local population. This Uruk settlement had a city wall with niches and towers, similar to a later wall built at Habuba Kabira. So this large fortified settlement may have been built to control nearby communities via force. Others have suggested that these settlements are too small and too far apart from the alluvium to act as effective military garrisons. At Sheikassan, we see storms of bitumen with stacks of ingots with impressions of reed mats on them. This bitumen is mostly from central and southern Mesopotamia. All in all, at Sheikassan, we see 18 levels with Uruk material, which attest to a long contact with the alluvium, stretching back before monumental construction. So hopping across the river to habuba Kabira proper, also called Tel Kanas. This is the center of the habuba Kabira metro area. It's a self-sufficient fortified city with an area between 20 and 40 hectares, with 10 of those hectares enclosed by walls. The population would have ranged between 6 to 8,000 people, and in both complexity and social hierarchy, it appears to be similar to other cities in South Mesopotamia. It was built on a low terrace, 7 to 10 meters above the floodplain, near a small earlier occupation. So it wasn't built in a totally unoccupied area, but the city they're building here is much larger and more complex than anything that existed there at the time which contrasts with other Uruk expansion sites, which were generally built in towns with some degree of existing social complexity. So this earlier occupation was replaced with a centrally planned layout built with large-scale collective labor. The streets radiate out from the center of town like spokes on a wheel. These also functioned as a drainage system because the center of town was also physically higher in elevation, so the water would run down the streets downhill away from the center of town. There was also a main road running parallel to the river that spanned the length of the city. The city was divided into sections with clearly delineated administrative, industrial, and residential quarters. So we see that it was all centrally planned at one time. The administrative complex at the center of town was a series of monumental tripartite buildings. So we see characteristic Uruk public architecture here on a huge scale. The central complex was 2,200 square meters. And the architecture here was in a southern Mesopotamian style. The houses were tripartite. We see Reemkin bricks and the same brick size and laying pattern that we do in the alluvium. They have temples, which are monumental buildings on artificial terraces, with niche facades. They're decorated with baked clay wall cones. And the central hall of the North Temple is 6 by 16 meters, all of which is extremely standard Uruk stuff. The walls surrounding the entire settlement were three meters wide, with regular rectangular towers on the outside. These walls had at least two gateways, both of which were on the west side, so opposite the river. This wall would have been incredibly resource and labor-intensive to build, so it's possible that they might not have built it if there weren't a real risk of invasion. So this may indicate that the site of Kabira exercise some kind of coercive control over local Syrian communities. But again, because they're so far away from the alluvium, they probably wouldn't have been able to totally dominate the locals without some amount of cooperation. As far as administrative technology, we see cylinder seals, tokens, and clay tablets with numerical inscriptions, all of which is clearly part of the Uruk style of administration. Notably, we don't see any clear grain storage, and we don't have that many agricultural tools, which probably indicates that agriculture was not the main point of the settlement. We do have remains of grain, but they're found in local-style jars, which might indicate that the people living in this settlement relied on the locals for grain. This would, of course, make them vulnerable to organized local opposition and makes the idea of total domination less likely. We see that they're processing bitumen here, just like they were at Nabi, And just like at Nabi, the bitumen they're processing here is from northern Mesopotamia, near modern Kirkuk. In terms of pottery, we see two levels of craft specialization. One sphere of pottery production was the domestic sphere. So hand-created pottery for everyday use at home, probably created by regular people. And the other one is professional pottery. So these are fine, undecorated wares made on a pottery wheel and these have a more limited range of shapes because they were intended to be produced in large quantities. We also see coarse flower pots, which are, of course, the northern style of mass-produced bowls, as well as beveled rim bowls, which are, of course, the southern style of mass-produced bowl. These may have been made by the same people. It's unclear because the techniques are different for each. Either way, Habubu was mostly unoccupied after the Uruk period. And one last site in the same metro area. We're going to look at Jebel Aruda. So this is much smaller than Kanas, about two hectares. It was built on a limestone ridge 60 meters above the surrounding plain which made it much easier to defend, but also farther from agriculture. At the center of this settlement, we see two monumental, niched and buttressed, tripartite buildings, which were probably administrative centers. We also see housing, including apparently elite housing, all of which is, of course, in an Uruk style. We also see a storeroom with copper and various semi-precious stones, with several kilograms of unworked lapis, which, of course, was imported from Afghanistan. We also see eight copper axes, which may have served as a kind of standard size of ingot. Notably, we also see iron show up in the late Uruk, this iron was probably obtained from meteorites, which would have been one of the only ways to find pure elemental iron in nature. We also see 13 numerical tablets here, which represent a middle stage in the development of writing. There are no pictographs in these tablets, so we know that the Uruk collapse here probably happened before the spread of pictographic writing. And like other nearby sites, occupation ceases here around 3100 BCE, around the same time that the entire Uruk colonial network collapses. So we're going to take a quick look at hasek in southeastern Anatolia. This is a small Uruk station, around 1.5 hectares, It has an oval, fortified settlement, which controls an important Euphrates crossing, connecting the Anatolian foothills to the North Mesopotamian plains. There's only one Uruk phase here, with no pre-existing settlement, but this Uruk stuff appears side-by-side with local, late Chalcolithic, northern ware, so the settlements were at least partially contemporaneous. We have a few stamp steels of local style, along with... Provincial cylinder seals of North Mesopotamian type, but other artifacts are unmistakably Uruk, including a cylinder seal impression of a griffin, which will become part of the later evolution of the mythical Anzu bird. The central structure at Hasekiruk was an Uruk tripartite type, similar to that at Tel Kanas slash Habubu Kibera. We have terracotta wall cones and plaques imitating cones, as well as beveled rim bowls and an eye idol, similar to those at Tel Brak. Also uniquely a bathroom with plumbing attached. Obviously didn't have running water but you could wash your waste down with a bucket and it would flow down into the sewer and away from the inside of the building where you are. This main building was surrounded by one-room houses, which served as work areas and grain storage facilities. One of these granaries was 100 square meters. So again, all of this seems to have been part of a single planned settlement. And the entire hilltop was burned at one point. Most of these buildings were destroyed. This was probably a targeted destruction, but the site was not abandoned afterwards. Rebuilding began immediately and occupation didn't end at this point. So let's start on sites within the Uruk network. Now let's take a look at Arslan Tepe, which, as I mentioned, was outside the quote-unquote colonial network, but which traded closely with this Uruk network. So let's look at Arslan Tepe, which is an indigenous town in southeastern Anatolia, about five hectares. It is near the west bank of the upper Euphrates, and not far from Girekli Tepe. It was occupied throughout the 3000s BCE, before and during Uruk contact. And unlike the other sites we've been looking at, it had no formal Uruk enclave. So... Arsalan Tepe was near deposits of several different types of metal, including copper, lead, and silver, all of which were widely traded during the Uruk period. So we're going to start by looking at Arsalan Tepe Level 7, which was occupied between about 3900 and 3400 BCE. So this is the late Chalcolithic 3 and 4 periods, the same time as the heyday of Tel Brak, and before Arsalan was in contact with Uruk culture. The main technological innovation during this period was the fast pottery wheel. It didn't replace earlier styles. In other words, it was used alongside the slow wheel. So people kept making their local pottery, which was similar to the Amuk F style in the north Western corner of the Mesopotamian world. On these pots, we see potter's marks, which are simple lines and dots impressed on the pot before firing. These are only found on pots made with a pottery wheel. This may be because different people's pots were fired in the same kiln. If so, putting specific markings on this pot to represent your identity would be a precursor of writing. And if this is different potters communicating with each other, or a way to indicate what the pots are meant to hold, then of course you have markings standing in for a concept, which would also be a precursor of writing. We looked at similar possible precursors of writing at Tel Brak around the same time period. So already in this period, we see monumental elite buildings on the top of the settlement mound. These are in the center of town, so they're physically on the highest ground, whereas smaller houses were located on the slopes and margins of this mound. This placement gave these particular monumental buildings visual, spatial, and social distinction. These buildings' walls were over one meter thick, possibly to support a second story. The internal walls were coated in plaster and sometimes painted with red and black designs. One of these buildings is called the Building with Columns. So in 2012, Marcello Frangipane wrote that it originally had, quote, a large reception hall with white plastered columns and paintings on the walls, end quote. This area was later split up into four different rooms, but we only see evidence of domestic activity. The only ceilings here are clay jar stoppers with no seal impressions. So unlike Ubaid and Uruk monumental buildings, we see almost no evidence of public activities in this upper town. In other words, no stamp seals, no tokens, etc., which combined with the domestic refuse indicates that these were probably private houses, not public buildings. There were public buildings. For example, Temple C was built at the end of this period. There was a nearby Temple D. And like the elite houses, these temples had their walls painted in red and black, but they were not centrally located like the big houses were. Temple C sat on a monumental platform made of big stone slabs. This foundation was leveled out with clay and horizontal wooden beams, similar to a late Chalcolithic II monumental building at Tell Brak. So it's worth asking why this temple was not at the center of the site, like most Mesopotamian temples were at the center of their sites. Marcello Frangipane hypothesizes that this is so that it would be visible to people from outside the town. In other words, this display was not primarily meant for people living inside the town. Temple C was over 400 square meters. It had a typical Mesopotamian tripartite design, so this region maintained the Ubaid design for public and monumental buildings, but not for domestic houses. The central hall of this temple is 18 by 7 meters, and we see niches in its internal wall, again recalling buttress recess architecture. In 2012, Marcello Franjapane wrote, quote, There is no doubt that the main activity performed in the building was distributing food to large numbers of people, probably in the course of ceremonies or feasts, end quote. So this would serve to increase and consolidate the prestige of local leaders. Here we see mass-produced bowls, So hundreds of string-cut, mass-produced bowls in the main hall. These are mostly found stacked upside-down in storage rooms. So these were a local development of post-Ubaid mass-produced bowl styles, not an importation of the Uruk beveled rim bowl, which we'll talk about. In terms of stamp seals, we see similar designs to the rest of northern Mesopotamia. In a nearby storeroom, we see more seals and bowls, all of which speaks to a complex system of redistribution that is older than Uruk contact. So seal impressions were often found along with other impressions from the same seals, So these impressions might have been sorted by the official who made the seal or the type of operation they were used for, which again speaks to some kind of auditing process going on during this earlier period. But we see no cylinder seals here, which were common in northern Mesopotamia during the mid-3000s, which we first found at Tel Brak, And we also see no numerical tablets yet. So at the end of this period, we see more sheep and goats in the temple area. So like Uruk colonies, they may be producing more wool for export. Elite houses had more cows, which are generally more expensive to raise. And regular houses had more pigs, which produce meat more efficiently than any other livestock animal. So the next level we're going to look at is Arslantepe Tepe 6a. This period lasts between 3400 to about 3000 BCE. So during and after the late Uruk period. During this period, we see clear evidence of Uruk contact. So this period kicks off with an abrupt transition in the early 3000s. The earlier temples are abandoned and replaced by a huge monumental complex, including both public and residential areas. This may be the first quote-unquote palace in the Near East. Basically, during this period, settlement becomes more concentrated, we see a larger-scale administrative and redistributive system, which probably turned a mid-sized town into an administrative center for the entire region, probably similar to Tepegara and Susa during the Susa I period. In 2012, Marcello Frangipane wrote, Villagers living elsewhere, quote, Must therefore have retained a certain independence in the way they manage their daily activities, despite being subject to strong pressure from the powerful central institutions, end quote. So during this period, we see a traditional Anatolian handmade style of pottery continue to be produced, but we also see clear Uruk types, some of which were probably imported from the South. During this period, pottery's marks disappear, probably because all these pots are being manufactured centrally by the palace. So there's no need for a specialist to communicate with each other with these pottery marks if they're all in the same place. This might also mean that the identity of the potter is less important because they're all being produced by the palace, you know, the kind of extended household structure that is producing more goods for export. We also see mass-produced bowls. So again, this is a local style of plain mass-produced pottery. These are made on a fast wheel, not in molds like beveled rim bowls. They're also larger than the uruk type, possibly for nicer meals instead of just bare minimum rations. We have a thousand of these bowls found in one building. Their storage pots are larger during this period, probably because they're dealing with larger quantities of stuff and or storing things for a longer period of time. We also see tall Uruk-style spouted bottles, probably for holding either wine or oil. The alluvium didn't commonly export either wine or oil. So this Uruk pottery outside the Uruk network trading a good that was not produced in the south might indicate that Uruk traders were involved in intra-network trade. So unlike some other sites, we see no evidence for intensive production within the settlement of Arsantepe. For example, we don't see any specialized craft areas. We do know that they were producing specialized goods in the larger economy. For example, we see metal tools. So this means that lots of production happened elsewhere outside the physical site of Arsantepe. There's a reason the population was spread out like this. The region is more mountainous, and good land is concentrated in specific valleys which are separated from each other by highland, which is only good for herders and not farmers. So there's not enough farmland or physical space for an agricultural society to expand. So instead of a Mesopotamian-style city like Brock or Unug, where you have lots of concentrated people concentrated in one huge settlement, here Arsantepe is an administrative center that is integrated with a larger community of herders and rural farmers that live elsewhere, some of which are nomadic. So this political difference may have been accompanied by a social difference. So in 2012, Franjapané wrote that Anatolian society may have been, quote, traditionally much less hierarchically articulated and probably less internally specialized, end quote. So the fact that you don't have this huge city existing for centuries means that these people probably didn't develop an ideological justification for hierarchy as they did in southern Mesopotamia. So people around Arsantepe probably had less reason to see their unequal economic relations with the administrative center as, quote-unquote, natural, which may be one reason for the collapse we'll see around 3,000. More on that later. So because of this, the administrative center had less intensive control over land. So in other words, villagers probably kept organizing their own local production, as they had been. We don't have any evidence that the palace operated a huge estate, like in southern Mesopotamia. So the demands made by this palace would have been external to production units, that is, villages elsewhere. So in other words, these villagers might have come to the conclusion that they were already making all their own stuff, so why do they need to pay tribute to this palace that did nothing for them and only took their resources? Over time, these tensions might have weakened the palace system. Because of the smaller administrative system and the fact that you have a smaller population in case of, you know, a war or something, Arcelentepe would have had fewer ways to address this conflict. So before we get to the collapse, let's look at this monumental complex. It was built on the ruins of the earlier Temple D, but this new administrative complex is apparently secular. We'll look at a couple reasons why academics assume that. At its peak, this complex was 3,500 square meters, or about two-thirds of an American football field. It was centered on one monumental two-story building called Building 37, which was probably the palace. It also included a number of other monumental buildings. We have over 2,200 seal impressions from over 260 different seals spread across this complex. So this palace would have served a huge amount of people, performing a wide variety of tasks. In the storerooms flanking the gateway, we see lumps of clay ready to be sealed and storage jars. We also see remains of grain and cultivated grapes, as well as a hundred mass-produced conical bowls to measure out rations, all of which speaks to their own local version of the kind of public buildings we see in the South. So to look at the palace specifically, Building 37 was a large building at the end of a massive courtyard. Its walls were 1.8 meters thick, so it almost certainly had two stories. So they were collecting storage and tribute from a broader region. We see 130 seal impressions from 32 different seals inside this building specifically, which speaks to a large amount of redistributive and administrative activity. The building itself had a bipartite design. So in other words, it had a main room with only one row of smaller rooms. So it didn't conform to the tripartite plan for temples, which might mean that it wasn't conceived of as the same type of building, which supports the assumption that it was a secular administrative building and not a temple. Its main room had a low clay platform with a fireplace. And it was accessible only through a small side room, so it might have been intended for a restricted group of people. We don't see any cultic objects found here, so again, no evidence of worship. So the only part of the building accessible to the wider public was a central side room, which opened onto the nearby courtyard, with which it was connected by a corridor, painted with an agricultural scene depicting either plowing or threshing. So in this room, the only room in the palace accessible to the outside, we see a three-stepped platform, and on top we see charred remains of a juniper wood structure. This is a different type of wood from that used in buildings. So what probably stood on this platform was some kind of mobile wooden object, maybe a throne. So this may be where the ruler received visitors. In other words, people waiting to petition the ruler would wait in the courtyard and line up in the corridor, and then petition the ruler one by one, while the ruler sat on a throne, on a throne dais, possibly. Speaking of this ruler, when we see art of a powerful leader-looking figure, he is always associated with agriculture. There's the mural on the quarter that I just mentioned. Also on seals, we see a leader on top of a thresher sledge cart. In other words, a cart pulled by oxen to separate grain from chaff. On this seal, he's followed by a procession of people carrying pitchforks. Unlike at Susa and Unung, we don't see any scenes of him torturing prisoners. We also don't see any scenes of temple or ritual ceremonies, and we don't even see any temple offerings. All of which, Marcella Frangipane interprets as evidence of secularization. In 2018, she writes, quote, It therefore would appear that a process had begun to exclude the population from the collective ceremonies and rituals, and the place in which authority was exercised was no longer a sacred place, but a broad space where people gathered, and the ruler appeared publicly and acted directly, without any religious mediation, end quote. Speaking of worship, though, Temple C was discontinued. Instead, we see two new temples, Temple A to the west and Temple B to the north. These new temples are similar to each other. They're smaller and more closed off to the public. They still had a painted central hall, an altar against one wall, and a fireplace with two small platforms. But a new feature is an inner sanctum. This is an inner room, not accessible from the outside and not decorated. Its window could be closed and barred. So public rituals involving the broader community still took place. We see evidence of food offerings, distributive feasts, lots of vessels, ceilings, animal bones, flint knives, grinding tools, and so on. But in 2012, Marchala Frangipane wrote, quote, But these ritual practices seem to have been increasingly more restricted to a small number of individuals, perhaps high-status persons, as is suggested by the small size of these buildings, the limited access to the cultic room, and the small number and large dimensions of the mass-produced bowls, end quote. Also, not for nothing, Temple B was right next to these largest private houses that still occupied the center of the site. Very likely, this inner space was for the private use of whoever lived in these large private houses. So we see a divide between local and Uruk-style administrative techniques across this level of Arslan So the local style of stamp seals often has animal figures and similar styles to the rest of the highlands, as well as Ubaid, Southern Mesopotamia. But Arslan had its own unique style. We also see Uruk-cylinder seals. So there's that image of the leader I mentioned earlier, We're sitting on a sledge, surrounded by attending personnel with pitchforks. We also see pairs of lines with entwined tails, and animal files and ladder-like motifs all of which are Uruk designs. Some of these seals may have been directly imported from Southern Mesopotamia, but most cylinder seal impressions were from locally produced seals. Most documents here have just one seal impression, which probably speaks to just one level of hierarchy. And like I mentioned earlier, we see evidence of a bureaucratic procedure where transactions were recorded with a seal impression. The sealing would be kept until it could be audited or referred back to. And after these were audited, they would be systematically discarded, often in groups of similar seals. So more or less, we see a simpler version of the same bureaucratic process we'll see later at UNUG. During this period, we see tallying slabs or evenly sized indentations on the surface. These might be mnemonic devices and or their version of a numerical tablet. So... These are useful in the sense that they can preserve one type of data across time and space, but without pictographs, they're essentially only telemarks, and they can't tell you what they're counting without some other kind of information included alongside them. So we will see that invented at Unug and Susa later on. So this administrative complex was not all built at the same time. It underwent a final expansion late in this period. But it was always centered around that one palace building, Building 37, but it was all destroyed at the same time. Most of these buildings were burned down. We see charred wooden beams and burnt plaster during the last century of the 3000s BCE. At the end of this period, we see a large wall built around the palace complex on stone foundations. This completely blocked off the road to the gate into the complex, which may have been a response to unrest, you know, walling off the central palace complex from the rest of the area. In a storeroom at the palace, we see arsenical copper, or bronze, weapons, nine swords, and twelve spearheads, as well as weapons made of a copper-silver alloy, in other words, over 25% silver, similar to those found in the Rimchen Gabauda at Unug, which we'll get to. These spearheads were identical to spearheads found at a seasonal public building used by mobile herders built on top of the ruins of the palace after it had been abandoned. This tells us a few things. Number one, Arslan Tepe proper doesn't seem to have made its own metal objects. I mentioned earlier we don't have any signs of metalworking inside the town, so they probably got these metal objects from mobile herders traveling through metal-rich areas and trading along the way. In 2012, Frangipani wrote, quote, This suggests the embryonic development of a military apparatus and the initial codification of organized forms of battle, end quote. Also, after Arslan fell, mobile herders made these same types of spearheads, and they also occupied the ruins of the palace not long after it was destroyed, so these may have been the same people that sacked Arslan Tepe. But either way, the site was still used for a while after the destruction, it kept its symbolic and political centrality for a while, it was occupied seasonally for a while, and then eventually it reverted back to a rural village. So during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, historians like to use an evolutionary framework based on a certain idea of the Western Roman Empire that idea being that civilizations rise and fall in cyclical fashion. But this kind of total civilizational collapse is extremely rare. In 2010, Marcella Frangipane wrote, quote, Very often, what is thought of as a collapse was merely a change. In other words, a few elements, even important ones, were transformed within the overall system that had fashioned a civilization, while other elements are simultaneously retained and adapted to the new conditions, end quote. For example, even the political collapse of the Western Roman Empire wasn't sudden. Theodoric was both a barbarian king and a Western emperor, depending on how you define those terms. And the Germanic barbarians themselves were both formed by and steeped in Roman culture. And even when, for example, Gaul was no longer part of the same polity as Constantinople, the collapse didn't suddenly change culture, religion, economic relations, and so on across the entire Mediterranean. Instead, the late imperial Roman system changed gradually over centuries. And closer to home... The late Bronze Age collapse was the definite end of several cities and the end of a certain iteration of the diplomatic and or trade network existing in the eastern Mediterranean. But Egypt and Assyria ended up fine. The Hittite dynasty had to leave Hattusa, but the dynasty survived elsewhere. The ancient world is currently doing a series on the post-Bronze Age Hittites. And even the massive city destructions didn't immediately end Mycenaean Greek society and so on and so on. In 2013, Guillermo Agazé wrote that pre-modern growth is episodic. So, periods of population growth and specialization and expanding trade networks cause short phases of fast growth, which are followed by long periods of slow or stagnant growth. So when these quick bursts of growth end, which is inevitable, these societies can see a loss of political legitimacy, the rise of alternate political ideologies, and sometimes outright rebellion. Algaze characterizes these as, quote, an intensification of all manner of conflict as self-defined factions within a declining society compete over its waning resources, end quote. For example, at the end of the Susa I period, the temple platform was destroyed after a short period of growth, maybe even by the same people who built it. So during the late 3000s BCE, we see explosive population growth, craft specialization, including writing, the fast potter's wheel, and copper and bronze working, as well as an intensification of trade. Like modern colonial systems, the South mostly imported raw or partially processed resources, like timber, metals, and stones and exported labor-intensive goods, like textiles. Over time, either to increase their own share of control of production, or as a result of losing these peripheral colonies, elites in the Alluvium might have practiced import substitution, which is when you replace labor-intensive imports with domestic products. Over time, this would be more profitable, because people were no longer importing valuable goods. Also, I mentioned that the Alluvium was probably importing captive labor, including prisoners from wars, both inside and outside Southern Mesopotamia, as well as slave raids in the nearby hills. These could have included farmers, herders, and artisans and skilled workers, which, once they are enslaved, can be forced to work harder and in different ways, again, to the benefit of whatever institution is enslaving them. So the effects of this kind of imbalanced trade will strengthen the core. Of course, Southern Mesopotamia is getting lots of agriculture and labor, probably importing enslaved artisans, importing foreign goods on its own terms, but the power of this core is based on its control over the periphery. And this kind of unequal exchange will eventually weaken the independent power of the periphery. The more access individual elites in the periphery have to southern Mesopotamian wealth and power, the more they'll orient their town around colonial export, and the more they'll be reliant on trade for their other needs. For example, if we could look at Tepe Siok, probably whatever local elites are enriched by trade with the alluvium are going to focus more and more of their local resources on copper production, and less and less on other aspects of daily domestic production, especially if those are produced more cheaply in the more complex and more populous South. Again, most of these things are economies of scale, and if they can be produced cheaply by unfree workers in the Alluvium, they might be cheaper to import to Siok than they would be to force your own guys in Siok to make them for you. So, of course, the biggest winners of this whole system are the elites and the institutions in the Alluvium. You know, they are founded colonies, maybe. They're trading with the rest of the world, and they are probably waging war. These are all opportunities for leaders to build and consolidate their power, and of course, they can create and modify elite institutions to reify this political power. And of course, as I mentioned, this unequal trade is creating a new player, the quote-unquote colonial elite in the periphery. So as I mentioned, this hypothetical chief in Tepe is gaining a fair amount of power from exporting more and more copper to Mesopotamia. But after a while, that chief might notice that this kind of unequal change is ultimately weakening Tepe and strengthening Unug, for example. So that chief might start to wonder if formal independence from the Alluvium or maybe from Susa, who knows, might suit their people better and might make them as a chief more powerful. It's worth noting that at the beginning of written history, in the early to mid-2000s BCE, we see many different powers in the periphery and certainly no unified kingdoms yet. And this might be a result of the breakup of the Uruk system into a number of unrelated polities around what used to be the periphery. So apart from this, we see several overlapping positive feedback loops. There are these familiar ones that we've been covering since season one. When you have more farm labor, you can grow more food, and so on. More population growth leads to more specialization in production, trade, and war, and so on. When you have a bigger army, you could win more wars and collect more slaves, which you can put to work on your farm to grow more food. When you sack your trading partner and enslave all of their artisans, now they work for you for free, and the bigger, richer, and more technologically advanced your polity is, the better at war it'll be, which of course accelerates all these other feedback loops. But of course, the knock-on effects of irreparably altering neighboring societies are unpredictable, As I mentioned, if peripheral elites become powerful enough through trade with you to threaten your own power over them, they might break off and you no longer have access to their stuff. And of course, transportation is inherently inefficient. It moves at the speed of a person walking, and it's vulnerable to bandits in the mountains, for example. So overland trade, and especially war, are extremely resource-intensive and risky. And of course, to look at agricultural intensification. Bigger cities have a need for ever-increasing amounts of grain. Ideally, they want to extend their control over as much farmland as possible. But if they can't do that, one temporary solution is to intensify agriculture. As we talked about in the Tell Brock episode, this can lead to shorter fallow periods and denser plots of farmland. And over time, this can deplete nutrients and build up the salt in the soil by around 3000 BC in the alluvium. Barley outnumbers wheat three to one. Barley, of course, being more salt tolerant. So essentially, this is a big, complicated, interconnected system. The Uwekappos themselves are at intersections of trade routes. In the economy, both of the entire system and of these large southern cities relies on a constant inflow of resources and labor. So any disruption caused by drought, political instability, or bandits or whatever, could cause a cascading system collapse. So I hope by now I've gotten the point across that this growth is unsustainable. It is essentially a pyramid scheme. The basis for all this newfound power, both among elites in the alluvium and elites in the periphery, is constant growth. But land, resources, and labor are all finite, and new institutions being new are unstable. And generally, elites gain power by giving gifts and granting favors to other elites. So, you know, it's okay that your priest or chief or whatever is much richer than you are if they make you moderately rich in the process. But the more these economies grow and the more people that are incorporated into them, the more people these elites have to buy off, which again leads to ever greater demand for gifts and favors which might cause some of these elites to overinvest in the most lucrative products at the expense of more quotidian but necessary daily products. So over time, this will cause diminishing returns. In monetary terms, the rate of profit will decrease over time. But in pre-monetary terms of agricultural potential and social capital, the more you pursue wealth and power, the more you diminish your ability to attain them. In other words, the more you tighten the grip, the more it slips through your fingers. So to take one example, we can look at timber. Even if Unug stopped building new buildings, they would still need wood as fuel for copper foundries, pottery kilns, and cooking to make plows, carts, and wheels, as well as repairs to existing buildings. And of course, as long as they can, Unuk's priests will keep building bigger and bigger temples, which we'll look at in the future, because ideological power afforded them by the temples gives them control over ever-larger construction crews to build ever-larger buildings, which of course reifies their real-life political power, and so on. But there is not infinite wood, especially upriver of southern Mesopotamia, so river travel is way cheaper than overland travel. You may remember the bit from the Gilgamesh poems, where after defeating Huaba, he floats the timber down the river, So essentially, you're going to want to cut down all the trees right next to the river first, because you just kind of have to tip them over into the river. But as you deplete all these trees that are within walking distance of the river, you're going to have to spend a whole lot more time and labor dragging them to the river, because of course they're too big to try to load onto a cart and pull with the donkey or whatever. But as you're expending more and more labor per individual log that you send down the river, the system can't scale up forever. And of course, besides that, we have to think about erosion. So if we cut down all the trees near the river, the soil has no roots to anchor it, so all that soil is going to wash downstream. If it happens gradually... The canals can silt up and waterways can become more shallow, which can cause the river to overflow its banks. It cause minor flooding. And the solution to that, of course, is to get a bunch of people in the canals to dig them out. But of course, if there's a sudden storm in the north, then you can have a mud tsunami destroying agro-crops and burying the entire city up to your eyeballs, which can cause problems. So, of course, flood narratives are very common in Mesopotamian literature. We can think of Atrahasis and Ziusudra and Utnapishtim, and, of course, Noah. In all these stories, the gods plan to flood the earth and wipe out humanity. They tell one guy to build a boat, put his animals on it, and so on. So destructive floods were extremely common in southern Mesopotamia. We've talked about the reasons why. But it's interesting that the earliest literature and the book of Genesis may record natural disasters that were caused by man-made environmental degradation. It's also worth looking at this aridification event between about 3300 and 3100 BCE. This happened at the same time as the collapse of the Uruk outposts, We can't have exact dates on this, so it's not clear whether the climate got drier, Mesopotamia scrambled to build entire settlements outside the alluvium and then abandoned them, or whether they built these settlements, then the climate got drier, and then they abandoned them. But either way, with the period ending around 3100 BCE, we see mass migration to the major cities in the southern alluvium, including Unug and Ur. So essentially, this whole Uruk network collapsed around 3100 BCE. Some of the small outposts may have continued after major sites. For example, people might have kept living at Tel Kanas. And of course, at larger sites, like Telbrac, people lived there for longer. Telbrac was only abandoned after 3,000 or so. Some of these enclaves might have been deliberately destroyed, like Hasek-Kuryuk. These might be a result of an internal revolution or a war between local elites. Similarly, the Uruk period ended violently in Susiana. At the same time, we see a change in settlement patterns in southern Mesopotamia. Lots of villages nearby cities were abandoned. We also see lots of new dependent village sites near cities, which might be a response to depleted farmland. In other words, you live in a village that is dependent on a nearby city. You use up all the resources in that soil, so you might move a little bit to soil that has not been depleted, but you're still part of that same city's economic network. We also see people moving from the cities to these new dependent villages, which might have been a response to the loss of colonies. In other words, now, instead of having dependent settlements, Elsewhere in Mesopotamia, you have dependent settlements a couple miles away might have also been caused by soil depletion or climate change. But generally, the broad historical trends we'll see around 3100 BCE are that monumental construction will slow down and population will become more geographically concentrated. Processes that used to happen in the enclaves are now done in Southern Mesopotamia, And of course, this is similar to what we see at Susa in between the middle and the late Uruk period, where what used to be a large, expansive city is eventually replaced by a small, more concentrated administrative center with more monumental buildings and more intensive record-keeping systems, probably administering the economy of a much larger region than just the spread out city of Susa itself. Anyway, that is the Uruk expansion. Next episode, we will start with a couple episodes on Unug itself. So previously, the kings and of Unug and the unnamed lord of Arata had a series of contests, at the end of which the gods proved that although they approve of both cities, Unug is clearly the superior of the two. So Inanna arrives at some point and sings a song. Her song was pleasing to her spouse, Ama Ushumgal Anam. Since that time, she has made it perfect in the holy ear. The holy ear of Dumuzid has sung it and has let the words be known. Then she visits Enmarkar in Unug. When the old woman came to the mountain of the shining May, she went up to him like a maiden who in her day is perfect, painted her eyes with coal, wrapped herself in a white garment, came forth with the good crown like the moonlight. She made Enmarkar, her spouse, occupy the throne dais with her. For Arata, the ewes and the lambs now multiply. Indeed, for Arata, the mother goats and their kids multiply. Indeed, for Arata, the cows and their calves multiply. Indeed, for Arata, the donkey mares and their black, swift-footed foals multiply. In Arata, they say together, Let them heap up and pile up for the grain piles. The abundance is truly your abundance. So, we have a happy ending. The two cities don't go to war. Inanna decrees that Unug will reign supreme, and Merkar is her literal spouse, but Arata is also happy and prosperous. But of course, it wouldn't be a Sumerian myth without gods commanding manual labor. Uh, (laughs) You knew it was coming.
2: (laughs) Get back to work! The myth's over! Get back to work! (laughs) <laughs> work, go dig that canal. Yeah.
0: The god Enlil establishes tasks for the people of Arata, which they are to perform for the people of Unug. In other words, this is a mythological justification for you know all of these folks from the mountains who regularly Sumerians saw uh, doing work in Sumer. Uh,
1: <clears throat> <laughs> I bet the people from the mountains who are doing the work in the Sumer had a slightly different mythology yeah. <laughs> and understanding of why they're doing all this work in Sumer all of a sudden. Yeah.
0: So, in this passage. It describes mining lapis lazuli, like growing fruit trees. Of course, Sumerians were not really directly involved in the mining process, so they wouldn't have had a clear picture of where it came from. They also described grapes as growing on trees, because again, they were not really growing them in the alluvium. The text is damaged, so we start in the middle of a sentence. Their task of plying gold, silver, and lapis lazuli. Fruit trees with their figs and grapes shall heap the fruit up in great mounds, and shall dig out the flawless lapis lazuli from the roots of the trees and shall remove the succulent part of the reeds from the crowns of the trees, and then shall heap them up in a pile in the courtyard of Ayanna, for Inanna, the lady of Ayanna."